Welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Palm Peeps. We are very excited today to have another fascinating pulmonary case and to be joined by a new guest. Hey, Farf, good to see you again and so excited for our case today. And we are going to be joined today by Tess Lichman. Absolutely. Yeah, Tess uh, went to medical school at Yale School of Medicine. She's an internal medicine resident at BI. She was actually one of my residents one of my first months in the ICU uh, and made me look good taking care of patients. She is applying a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care, and she's actually already doing some exciting research in vascular prenatal lung disease. So for all you program directors out there listening, you know, uh, write this name down. Tess, uh, welcome to Palm Peeps. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I can say that I've been listening to Pulm Peeps since he started, and it makes me look good in the ICU. So thank you. <laughs> That's our number one goal. Tess, we're excited for um, your case today. But before we dive into the case, we really want our audience to get to know our guests. So what is one thing that you like to do outside the hospital? Like some of my favorite things are running outside of the hospital and listening to audiobooks. And sometimes I do them at the same time. Very nice. Running away from the hospital, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Running away from the hospital, listening to Palm Peeps. I love it. (laughs) Okay, Tess is going to get started with our case soon, but just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case we'll present today is HIPAA compliant, and some details may have changed to protect the privacy of our patient. All right. Sounds good. Let's dive in. Tess, it sounds like you had a really fascinating case. Tell us about what uh, what happened. Yeah. So this is an, a really interesting case. A patient I actually just took care of in the ICU. So this is a young man in his early 20s. He presented to the emergency department with one week of cough and small volume hemoptysis. He says he's been experiencing several episodes of hemoptysis per day during these past few weeks. He says each episode of hemoptysis is probably about a quarter of a cup of blood. Um, And he says also during this time, he's noticed worsening nausea, vomiting, headaches, and fatigue. Given the worsening symptoms, he went to the ED. So given this presentation, what would be your first step in evaluating this patient? Oh, I can do that one. And, you know, I, this makes my heart race a little bit, but luckily uh, we've had a whole episode about homopsis to kind of help us and and guide us with an approach. We had Chris Cap and Matt Schimmel on that episode with us. And one of the first things when we're thinking about homopsis is, you know, is it life-threatening? So is it life-threatening or massive homopsis or not? And always assessing the patient's stability. You know, and remember this includes hemodynamics, respiratory status, and airway protection, um, specifically thinking if the patient needs early intubation. I know in that episode and probably the three of us today, there may still be some controversy about when you should be concerned and what volume you should be concerned about, but approximately um, anything greater than 150 to 500 cc's of blood expectorating in a 24-hour period or bleeding at a rate greater than 100 cc's per hour. I think for and I probably both think it's massive. And for practical purposes, more than 150, you know, patients can easily quantify that by equating that to about a half a cup of blood in 24 hours. But it Tess, this definitely sounds like some very concerning hemoptysis. Some further fine questions for you. Um, just want to see what was what were his vitals like? And from your experience, did you think he was stable? And a second follow-up question for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the blood that he was expectorating? Was it bright red? Um, was it purple? Were there any clots in there? Yeah, Christina, we were all really worried as well when we first heard about this patient. 
Uh, thankfully, he was pretty stable on exam when he first arrived to the hospital. His initial vitals were a temperature of 99.2. His blood pressure was 157 over 81. His heart rate was 94. Respiratory rate was 18. And he was satting 94% on room air. In terms of his physical exam, it was actually pretty unremarkable on admission. He was coughing during the exam, but he didn't bring anything up. Uh, he didn't um, have any pallor on exam, and, and there weren't any focal findings in, in his lung or cardiac exams. To answer your question about the hemoptysis, he says the blood was mostly red, and he doesn't remember any blood clots specifically. You know, so despite the uh, concerning history with the large amount of hemoptysis he described, uh, he was pretty stable when he first arrived. Given that, how would you start building a framework for this patient? Yeah, it's a great question. And I love hopping into the vitals and physical right away because this guy seems like he could be really sick, right? So you don't always have a chance to do all the history we'd like to. But thankfully, he sounds like he's a little bit more stable than his first presentation. That being said, I always worry with young patients like this, you know, people in their 20s who look better than they sound because a lot of times if they're young and healthy, they could have a ton of reserve until it gets really bad, right? So he probably can compensate until he loses a good amount of lung volume or a lot of lung is occupied with blood uh, and then he can just fall off a cliff rapidly. So I, uh, my antenna is still up. But back to your question. So thankfully we had that great episode thinking about a hemoptysis and how we approach it. One thing we always talk about is the source, you know, is it definitely hemoptysis? He was also vomiting. Could it be hematemesis or from his nose and throat? That being said, we always assume it's from our organ. We always assume it's the lungs and that his history is right before sort of punting it to anybody else. I recall that Matt and Chris told us that 90% of true large volume hemoptysis, especially massive or life-threatening, comes from the bronchial circulation and only a minority from that relatively low pressure pulmonary circulation. So we can already say that this patient is going to need some imaging and thinking about those different circulatory systems of the lung is always just good reminder for us. So finally, after thinking about if it's coming from the lungs or not, and then what the most common etiologies are within the lungs, I think about the broad bu buckets of things that can cause hemoptysis. So Tess, I know you did some thinking about this case and, and probably looked at these causes thoroughly while like, thinking about him. Can you just tell us some of those buckets and some of the key diseases we, uh, we think about? Yeah, definitely. Um, because this patient was coming in pretty undifferentiated, um, it was a good opportunity to think a little bit about my differential for hemoptysis. So when I think about hemoptysis, I try to organize the different causes into several large categories. So my buckets are airway, parenchyma, vascular, coagulopathy, ingestion, and pseudohemoptysis. And of course, there always has to be an idiopathic category as well. Absolutely. What, what would be a differential with that? <laughs> yeah. So I'll just give a few examples from some of those categories. So for example, under my airway bucket, uh, common causes of bleeding originating from the airway could be things such as bronchitis or bronchiectasis. Whereas in my parenchyma bucket, I think of things like pneumonia or an abscess or rheumatic diseases such as vasculitis. Vascular, you can think of things such as an AVM or pulmonary vascular occlusive disease. I think coagulopathy is pretty self-explanatory. In my ingestion bucket, I think about things such as like cigarette smoking or drugs. Something I learned when I was going through my differential for this case was hydralazine is actually a cause of vasculitis that can lead to bleeding. <laughs> 
And as you mentioned, it's important to recognize that not all bleeding comes from the lungs. And so that's why I have a pseudohemoptysis category that can include GI or or nasopharyngeal bleeding. In fact, when um, this patient first presented, he was describing his hemoptysis as vomiting of blood. So the first diagnostic study he went through was an endoscopy, but we'll get into the diagnostics in a little bit. That is great. Thank you for reviewing that. And I, I do think that there's so much value in just having these broad buckets so you don't forget any of these things as you're going through. Yeah, that was a great, um, great so far discussion, Tess. And I, I forgot about the hydralazine, but being associated. So thank you for bringing that up. But for our patient, you know, he is super young. So I think it could really be anything within the framework that you mentioned. And I do have some questions related to his past medical history, as well as, you know, other events like this, and as well as his kind of daily habits. Um, So bronchiectasis is up on the differential and certainly always infection, although this would be an unusual presentation of a simple community acquired pneumonia. I do want to know though, if he's had any congenital conditions, me being a CF doctor, I always think of CF or a collagen disorder, or really any autoimmune disease that would make DAH or diffuse alveolar hemorrhage more likely. Um, and would also be interested in knowing his ethnicity and heritage as it could increase or decrease suspicion for some certain diseases. And then, as you kind of mentioned, you know, medications and exposures will be really important to get. So do you have some more information that you can share with us? Yeah, definitely. I can give you a little bit more information. So his past medical history is pretty minimal. He had RSV as a newborn uh, with a prolonged NICU stay, but following that he developed normally and hasn't had any um, subsequent respiratory issues. And in fact, hasn't had any other medical issues since then and has not seen a doctor since his pediatrician. He was evaluated by his primary care physician in the past few weeks uh, leading up to this presentation when he was not feeling well. I mean, he was diagnosed with new hypertension and he was started on an antihypertensive, but he's never been told he had high blood pressure before. In terms of home medications, um, he wasn't on anything up until a few weeks before this hospital stay. Uh, he was started on clonidine, a 0.1 milligrams TID by his PCP, as well as given a PRN on Dancitron, four milligrams. Um, He's also been taking some ibuprofen PRN for headaches. In terms of his social history, he works as a mechanic in a garage. He does admit he occasionally has extended exposure to toluene. I didn't know what toluene was before this case, but this is a a mixture that's added to gasoline. He denies any alcohol use or illicit drug use. He currently smokes about half a pack per day and has been doing this for about five years. He denies any recent travel. He's white, and he was born in the Northeast United States. Uh, In terms of family history, his mother um, is diagnosed with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in the past few years. His niece has rheumatoid arthritis, and he has multiple relatives, including maternal grandfather with bladder cancer. So what do you think, Dave? Does this influence your thinking at all? All right. Case closed. Classic toluene toxicity, obviously. Um, uh, It's really interesting that he knows that he's had this exposure and definitely something to consider. So there are a bunch of extremely helpful history portions here that I think will influence our our thinking about this patient. So the first one is the diagnosis of hypertension in the setting of all of this in a young 20-year-old. It was pretty unusual. Most 20-year-olds don't have hypertension that require medicines, let alone clonidine, which was an interesting first choice for 
him. But in this new setting of uh, hemoptysis with generalized nausea and vomiting and a hypertensive episode recently, bad enough to require medicines, I'm definitely thinking about renal diseases. Pulmonary renal syndrome is a common syndrome that we see that comes up with hemoptysis. And it sounds like you could have some renal dysfunction as well. So we should probably get some labs and that's definitely on my differential. Second thing is that he smokes. So this just raises a bunch of ranges of possibilities. Now he's young. He hasn't been smoking for that long. You know, we wouldn't be really thinking about lung cancers right now, but it is always possible. He could have a alpha one antitrypsin deficiency and smoking. He already has significant emphysema. Definitely something that's going to influence him a little bit. If he had bronchiectasis from some condition that could definitely make it worse and lead to infections and having hemoptysis. His family history is impressive for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. It sounds like there's a, a bunch of autoimmune disease around. So this just increases my suspicion that he could have an autoimmune disease. And as we said, pulmonary renal syndromes or other causes of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage are already things that we're sort of kicking around. The occupational exposure is the fourth thing. You know, I think toluene, I don't know specifically about, but gasoline and, and the fumes like this can either cause pneumonitis from their exposure. And also people can intentionally huff them sometimes, which causes really bad pneumonitis. I've seen a couple of cases like that. So we should ask him, you know, about any drug use that you know, not prescribed or other activities like that. And then finally, the childhood history of RSV and being in the NICU. You know, be unusual to have lasting lung problems and him have no recollection of it. But if he was intubated for a while, could he actually have had a little tracheal stenosis that he never really knew about? And then we're seeing some manifestation now. So these are all things that come to mind after hearing it. So this point, I think I'd want to do just further review of systems and past medical history, focusing on some of these questions, maybe a little bit more detailed physical exam than our initial cursory one to make sure he was stable, just to see if there's any signs of systemic illnesses. And now that I know what I'm looking for, for some of the physical exam, like I'm going to look at his joints. I'm going to look for rashes a lot more than I may have initially. Definitely. So on a more detailed review of systems, it was notable really only for a headache that he had for the past week prior to presentation. To me, this is worrisome for his hypertension, like you pointed out, although I suppose a vasculitis or a cerebritis could be considered as well. Otherwise, his review of systems was negative for fevers, chills, night sweats, weight loss, dyspnea on exertion, lower extremity edema, orthopnea, PND, dysuria, GI complaints, rashes, and joint pains. And we even asked him about pericarditis um, symptoms as well as pleuritis, sinus disease, and asthma. When we asked him about pulmonary history, he denied any prior history of asthma, upper airway obstruction, chronic cough, or recurrent infections. It seems, you know, since his intubation as a child, he's had no lung issues at all. He also denies ever inhaling fumes directly and tries to use protection at work most of the time. A more comprehensive physical exam was really not much more revealing as well. He didn't have any rashes or joint pain or swelling, um, no clubbing, nail changes or other revealing findings either. Thanks Tess, it looks like you did a really um, super thorough job looking for things and I love the, the physical exam and looking for clubbing specifically and some other um, hand abnormalities. I think ever since listening to Sonia Danoff on our LD episode say that she starts every exam by looking at the hands, I feel myself doing that on every patient I've been with in the ICU mm -hmm. recently. So I, I'm glad that you pointed that out. But in, in this case, you know, the notable negatives don't change things too much. I know that the patient will be definitely getting some imaging, but I'm sure he had a bunch of labs done as well. So I'm interested, Tess, what do those show? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, as opposed to his review systems and exams, his labs are actually really revealing. So his labs on presentation, his white count was 13.5, his hemoglobin was 6.7, his platelets were 208, his INR was 1.2, and his PT and PTT were normal. So uh, significant anemia with normal coags. His BMP showed a creatinine of 19.7, a BUN of 92, potassium of 5.7, bicarbonate of 14, and an anion gap of 20. His phosphate was 8, all just suggesting really significant renal dysfunction. He had a VBG with a pH of 7.32, a PCO2 of 31, and a PO2 of 27, also demonstrating metabolic acidosis. Otherwise, his LFTs were normal. He had a CRP that was elevated to 63.4, and a UA obtained on admission demonstrated large blood and a large amount of protein. A urine microscopy was also done pretty quickly after he was admitted, which demonstrated several granular casts as well as dysmorphic RBCs. Well, impressive. Before we dive into that, some of you may hear my cat meowing in the background. Her name's as me. I can't stop her from meowing or get her to stay away from the computer. So that's going to be here for the episode. <laughs> but back to our case. So really impressive, obviously super helpful labs. I do want to take one quick detour, just talking about the, the VBG and the blood gas. Just we're on a pulmonary podcast. We should talk about all of these. So let's just assume this VBG is essentially an AVG. We know that assumption is not uh, perfect in terms of the pH and PCO2. But if we look at it, he's acidemic, his pH is 7.32, his CO2 is 31. So we already think this is a primary metabolic acidosis based on the direction of his respiratory change. Then we look at his BMP and use Winter's formula here to calculate a predicted PACO2. So 1.5 times bicarb plus eight, and then it's plus minus two. That gives us 29 plus minus two, and his PACO2 is 31. So this seems to be an appropriate compensation. And then we use our delta delta to see if there's a additional process going on. So his anion gap is 20, his predicted anion gap is 12. So his delta anion gap is eight. His bicarb is 14 and normal is 24. So his delta bicarb is 10. Eight over 10 is a delta delta of 0.8. So this patient looks like they have a combined anion gap and non-anion gap acidosis with appropriate respiratory compensation. But that is a super nerdy detour. Let's get back to the main point is that we see this incredible renal dysfunction in this patient. And we also see in urine microscopy with granular casts and dysmorphic reds. So Tess, what did you think about when you saw these labs come back and as he was coming up? Yeah, like you mentioned, Dave, I thought overall his labs were really impressive for the renal failure with a creatinine of 19.7 and BUN of 92 and the elevated phosphate, it didn't seem to be exactly brand new process. Um, so it seems like maybe the renal dysfunction had been going on for at least a week or more, which fits with his symptoms. The urine microscopy, which demonstrated the granular cast from dysmorphic RBCs, uh, was also very suggestive of a possible pulmonary nephritis syndrome. And the degree of his anemia was also concerning to me, just given the reported hemoptysis. So based on the combination of the renal failure and the hemoptysis, pulmonary renal syndromes jumping to the top of my differential. I totally agree, Tess. And given the level of this anemia, I definitely want some imaging stat. This is a tough situation with his renal function since we'd worry about contrast and wanting to preserve his kidneys. But we know that CTA is the best way to diagnose active pulmonary bleeding. 
But since overall, I think he has some clinical stability. He hasn't had recurrent hemoptysis with us in the, in the ED. I'd start with a CT without contrast, and then we can always get a repeat with contrast if needed. Did he have either of those done tests? Yeah, definitely. So I can read the reports from his chest X-ray and CT on admission. So his chest X-ray, diffuse bilateral opacities uniformly throughout bilateral lymph fields. Findings are nonspecific and could potentially represent atypical infectious or inflammatory process or potentially edema. And then his CT read goes as follows. Enlarged prevascular, paratracheal, and bilateral hilar lymph nodes. Bilateral, diffuse, subtle, parabronchial, ground glass, and scattered, tiny nodular opacities at the lung bases. Guess it'll always be reassuring if you get a CAT scan for hemoptysis and the first thing that's commented on is the lymph nodes. That's usually a good sign for you. Um, and we will post these images online so you guys can see them yourselves. Totally true, Furf. Um, and I think the, this imaging is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is that test, nothing's really leaping out to me as kind of pathognomonic. You know, there's one no clear source of bleeding or area of concern that seemed to be identified. You know, he doesn't have any type of underlying cystic um, disease, bronchiectasis, or large cystic lung disease that would explain his findings. Uh, he also doesn't have one clear area that is worse than others, which you might expect with the localized bronchial artery bleed. But the nature um, of the ground glass opacities, which with them being diffuse, has me worried that those represent either an infectious or inflammatory process in the lungs, but could also be blood. So in the clinical context, DAH is still in the differential and that these areas are representing, you know, more of a cabriolitis. The nodules don't specifically help narrow that down, but can, but can be seen in multiple causes of autoimmune cabriolitis. So again, this is the main concern. We could prove DAH on bronchoscopy with serial alveolar lavage and worsening cell counts on each aliquot if we needed to, though. Thanks so much, Christina. You know, at this point, we were thinking about this patient as a young man in his 20s presenting with two weeks of recurrent hemoptysis and progressive renal failure. Given the concomitant hypertension, our highest concern was for rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis and DAH, consistent with an underlying autoimmune pulmonary renal syndrome. Um, these diagnoses are united because of involvement in the small vessels that make up the glomerular and pulmonary capillary interfaces. So in terms of most common causes of pulmonary and renal syndrome, the two most common are Inca vasculitis or anti-GBM antibodies. There are a number of other causes that can be seen, but they're more rarely implicated. However, um, when a patient presents like this, you should send a broad workup. That would include lupus vasculitis, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, IgA vasculitis, cryoglobulinemia, Michette's disease, misconnected tissue disease, systemic sclerosis, or myositis. Yeah, that's an awesome review, Tess. I, you know, as you said, pulmonary renal syndrome, you really want to make a specific diagnosis so you can treat the underlying disease. And I think the biggest thing you pointed out is that, you know, these diagnoses are united by capillaritis or small vessel inflammation caused by some autoimmune or inflammatory process. And it's affecting the most at-risk capillary beds, which are in the lungs uh, and in the glomerulus manifesting that way. 
So you send the broad serologic workup right away. And then if that is unrevealing, then we usually want to go after a biopsy in pulmonary renal syndrome. This could be the lung, it could be the kidney, and it could be the skin too. A lot of these patients present with a rash. This patient didn't have that, so we wouldn't blindly biopsy, but if they have a rash, that can expose it as well. Usually amongst those, we favor a kidney biopsy. One in general is probably safer than doing a lung biopsy, but also in someone who's already having hemoptysis, we don't really want to expose them to that added risk. So um, that's where we would usually go if we needed to get tissue. The other big thing that I always think about for these patients is empiric treatment. They can be really sick and they can get a lot worse very fast. So in addition to supportive care and airway protection, if they need it, we may think about treating for an autoimmune disease even before we have anything back. And because a lot of this is antibody mediated, we generally treat to the most common disease that's doing it, ankylvasculitis and GBM. And this involves immunosuppression and or plasmapheresis. So for autoimmune capillaritis that we know is due to an ANCA, we're often thinking about cyclophosphamide and rituximab agents, but we like to have the diagnosis before we get there. Therefore, we usually start with just sort of a generic immunosuppression, high dose steroids, thousand milligrams times three days while we're waiting everything to come back. And then if they're really sick and we have a high suspicion, we may add phoresis just to take off any antibodies that are causing an issue and try to stem the tide of everything that's going on. Yeah, Dave, that summary definitely applies to this patient's case. So in this case, you know, initially the patient's imaging and labs looked much worse than he did. However, his respiratory status quickly worsened, and on his second day of admission, he was escalated rapidly to high-flow nasal cannula, and he was transferred to the ICU, which is where I met him. He had a kidney biopsy, but while he was waiting for the results and for his lab work to return, he was empirically started on the pulse-dose steroids and plasmapheresis that you mentioned. He was also started on CRT for his renal failure. Thanks, Tess. And one thing I'll mention here um, is that if this patient had worsening respiratory status and hemoptysis, there would definitely be a low threshold to intubate. But probably some of our listeners may remember when Chris taught us in our top consult episode of hemoptysis that really the patient coughing um, is the best airway clearance possible. With this patient in the MICU, you can you know, obviously observe him and can still be supported without intubation if he's able to clear his airway and then high flow nasal cannula may be the best option, but I'm sure you were on the lookout for needing an endotracheal tube and ventilator in him. And just as a clinical pearl, if intubation is required with the diagnosis of underlying hemoptysis, we'll try to aim for an ADO-ET tube if possible. Can you clarify why is that just to keep the ET tube open, he's hemoptysizing? Yeah, and then sometimes when you, uh, if you need to go in and actually, you know, take out or suctioning or if there's clots or anything, you just want a larger size tube so that doesn't get become occluded. Yeah, and okay. and want to be able to get a bronchoscope, the biggest bronchoscope possible in there. You know, you can get a big scope in a seven five, but if you end up having to get the real therapeutic scope, then you want as much wiggle room so you can get it down and maneuver when you're in the airways. Cool. Thanks for clarifying. So yeah, definitely. This patient was hypoxemic, but he didn't have um, much ongoing large volume hemoptysis and was clearing his airway well. So we didn't think he needed to be intubated. So ultimately, after several days of waiting for the labs to come back, and while he continued to receive the empiric steroids and plasmapheresis, his serology um, for anti-GVM disease finally returned positive. The prelim pathology from his kidney biopsy returned a few days later with pathognomonic findings for anti-GVM disease including crescentic glomerulonephritis with linear IgG staining. So 
Ultimately, he was treated with several days of post-op steroids and he received four sessions of plasmapheresis and he quickly improved and was able to be weaned down to room air actually and transferred back to the medicine floor. After that, he had several serial anti-GBMs, serology obtained and with declining titers. Uh, his last one was negative prior to discharge, which was consistent with a positive response. By the time of discharge, he was producing a small amount of urine, but his discharge creatinine remained at 12, and he was discharged on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday dialysis schedule. So hopefully his renal function continues to improve as an outpatient. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, what, such an amazing case test, and thanks for sharing, and thankfully a good outcome for him. You know, so I do want to talk a little bit about anti-GBM. Um, so anti-GBM is a small vessel vasculitis that overall is really rare. And, um, you know, I think maybe in the last five years, I've seen it one time. So this is, um, you know, kind of super interesting, but great for people to have on the differential um, in the right clinical context. Usually occurs in, in kind of bimodal. So younger patients, less than 30 or older, greater than 50. And it's often driven by the antibody formation against antigens in the glomerular basement membrane. And this is thought to be acquired to yet an unknown stimulus. And thankfully, the antibody generation stops after time. And most or approximately 90% of patients with anti-GBM disease present with clinical features of rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, uh, while between 25 and 60% can also present with alveolar hemorrhage. And this is more common in young patients, such as your case. So systemic complaints and signs, such as malaise, weight loss, fever, arthralgias, are usually present only during a short prodromal period. And I think overall the diagnosis is usually made with the clinical story, uh, as well as anti-GBM antibodies in either serum or kidney biopsy. I know we've talked a little bit about treatment tests, but can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. Treatment first line includes plasmapheresis and immunosuppression. First line immunosuppression for anti-GBM disease includes IV steroids up front and cyclophosphamide. A second line agent would be rituximab or mycophenolate. So deciding who to treat would include any patient with pulmonary hemorrhage, all patients with kidney involvement who do not require immediate dialysis. So whether to treat patients who present with dialysis-dependent kidney failure without pulmonary hemorrhage is a more challenging decision. Some experts would not treat these patients because there's a low likelihood of kidney response. There's actually a, a randomized trial that was published a few years ago in NEGM called PEXIVES that looked at plasmapheresis and steroids versus steroids alone in patients with ink-associated vasculitis. And it actually found that there wasn't any significant difference in death from any cause or end-stage kidney disease in patients with ink vasculitis uh, if they use plasmapheresis and steroids or steroids alone. However, because these are really rare diseases we're talking about, there, there was only 700 patients total in this trial, and only 27% of these patients presented with pulmonary hemorrhage. Because of that, it still remains a class one indication to treat any patient who presents with a pulmonary hemorrhage with plasmapheresis. And in general, when speaking to nephrologists, the general consensus is you know, factors such as young age or patients presenting with really acute disease, um, they'll typically treat um, patients with dialysis-dependent kidney failure as well, just because there's more likelihood of response in those situations. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we want to be aggressive up front. And I agree with you on the brand spectrum of things. That's not that big, but 704 patients for like an ICU trial would be a lot. You know, so it seems <laughs> like a good, uh, good answer to things. 
Wow. That was an incredible case. And thank you so much for coming on, Tess. It was a real pleasure having you on the show. I think just working through these pulmonary renal syndromes and thinking about them is really important because it prompts us to recognize them quickly and then treat them quickly. The problem with these people is they get sick so quickly that if you don't think about it and have a high index of suspicion, you might miss it. So um, I like to do a takeaway at the end of every episode or we meet Christina and I both like to do it. And so, you know, for me, I think my takeaway is actually going to be your uh, anatomic approach to a diagnosis of hemoptysis. You have, you know, airway, parenchyma, vascular, and then a couple other things that don't quite fit in the anatomy, pseudo-hemoptysis, uh, ingestion, idiopathic. But having those big buckets just seems like a nice thorough way to never miss something. What about you? I think I have two takeaways from this case. One is I keep a broad differential when a patient reports hemoptysis or hematemesis because it really can be coming from the lungs, the GI system, or the oropharynx. Like this patient presented with what he said was hematemesis, and it was really only when he had the negative EGD was prompted the further diagnostics. And my second takeaway would be you know, you have to treat these patients hard and fast because that really affects their, their outcome. So the time is of the essence. Totally. And I, I think for mine, I think I have two. The first one being is that FERP has a cat. Um, so <laughs> one takeaway for that's my first takeaway. The second takeaway is that I think I finally learned how to pronounce Toline um, and, <laughs> and can recognize that as a potential occupational exposure that can cause both pneumonitis as well as hemoptysis. And then Tess, I think the, the last one, um, you kind of bring that always important to remind yourself about what medications they're on. I think you brought up a great point about hydralazine causing some pulmonary hemorrhage as well. So thank you so much, Tess, for joining us today. This was a, a really fantastic case. And I hope that you spend some more time in the NICU um, getting ready for Pullman and bring us some further cases to share in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.